Good evening. I guess I lost my job. <laughs> Woohoo! Five weeks from tomorrow, I'll be in Hawaii. Not that I'm counting. Not that I'm counting, okay? No, I'm not. I'm really not. <laughs> I'm also a big liar. So I thank God for what God's done here. It's been a great run. I tell you what, I, I am so happy for this church. I mean it. I mean it. I love this place. I, I could do without the 30 below zero, but I love this place. I love the church and the community and the people here. So I'm very, very stoked for what's going on. I would like you to join, I would like to ask you to join me, uh, to join me now, though, however, in a word of prayer uh, for our country, for this, uh, our world, you know, with the coronavirus and so forth. So would you please join me, and we're going to pray on behalf of our church, our nation, and our world today. Let's pray. Kind Father, in Psalm 145, we are told that you are gracious, that you are compassionate, that you are slow to anger and rich and mercy and love. So today we come to you in praise and thanksgiving for that kindness. We praise you for the immeasurable grace that you pour out on us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we admit, Lord, that on our own, we owe it up to the reality that our lives fall far short in that regard. We aren't kind. Oh no, we're not gracious. In many cases, Lord, we don't show love even to those closest to us. So we confess our shortcomings to you, those things we've done that we shouldn't have done, and those things that we should have done but left undone. Lord, for these we ask your forgiveness. And Father, we continue to pray for this nation with the political upheaval that swirls around our government. We pray for stability, Lord, and that our governing authority will lead us into peace and righteousness. And Father, for our world community with this outbreak of the coronavirus, we pray for healing from and containment of this deadly virus. We pray for our world health officials responsible for this, that they would be granted success. And for this wonderful church, Lord, we pray for Pastor Darrell and his wife as they bring an end to their ministry and life in Texas and join us here. And we pray, Lord, for a smooth transition. Continue to work on our midst and may we always seek what your Spirit is saying to us as a church and do that. Lord, as we consider your grace now in Jonah chapter 3, open our hearts, open our minds, deepen our understanding, and we pray these things in the beautiful and wonderful and glorious name of Jesus. Amen. I want you to open your Bibles right now with me to Jonah chapter 3. That's page 926 on the, you know, in the Bibles that are in front of you. Jonah chapter 3, page 926. So we are in a short series on Jonah called Jonah, Man on a Mission. And today we're going to head into chapter 3, uh, where the book actually hinges. The book is divided into two parts. You have Jonah, the man on the run, in chapters 1 and 2. And then in chapter 3 and 4, you have Jonah, man on mission. And that's the focus of this sermon series. So today, as we head into chapter 3, I want to remind you again that the book of Jonah is not about a fish. It's not about a fish. Most of us have grown up hearing about Jonah and the whale. It's not about a fish, and it's not about a guy who's running from God. The book of Jonah, in fact, is a story of God's grace. It's a story of God's grace and of God's invitation to us to experience that grace, to let it transform, shape, and mold our lives, and then to give it away 
to other people. That's the book of Jonah. So by way of reminder, Jonah is called by God to go to Nineveh to preach, really, the gospel. The gospel. And Nineveh is what we you know, call today uh, Iraq. And Jonah is a Jewish nationalist. He have, would have worn a mega hat. You know what that is, right? Mega hat? Make Israel great again. Red hat, white letters, little white star of David on the side. He was a Jewish nationalist, a patriot. We know this from 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, where he encourages the wicked king Jeroboam to a militaristic uh, expansion of Israel's national borders. He is very patriotic. Very patriotic. He's also smart. He knows that the nation of Israel has not lived up to their part of the covenant, the deal that they made with God as seen in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. He knows that the, 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 the cost or the consequences for not living up to that covenant is God's just judgment. He knows that the country most likely to put that judgment on the nation of Israel is Assyria, which they do, by the way, in 2 Kings chapter 17. And he also knows that Nineveh is the capital of the Syria. So he does not have happy thoughts about Assyria. Now it's true, the Assyrians back in the day were a very cruel and wicked people. They would have been considered a terrorist nation. When they defeated an army, they would for fun cut off the nose, ears, arms, and legs of the soldiers remaining just you know, to do it. The officials of the city that, you know, resisted them, they'd tear out their tongues, put them on a rack, skin them alive, and hang the skins around the city. Assyrians. And then they'd take the teenagers, the flower of hope and youth in the city, and burn them alive. And this is the nice things they would do. So Jonah did not like the Assyrians. He hates the Assyrians, dislikes everything about them. They, in his mind, don't deserve God's grace. He wants God's judgment, not God's offer of grace. So mega hat in hand, when God calls him to go and preach to, to, to Nineveh, he buys a ticket to Spain. He goes to the other end of the world. It's the farthest known place in the world at that time, 2,500 miles away from Jerusalem. Nineveh is another 500 miles north and east. So he goes as far away as he can get and figures he's going to run away from the presence of God. In fact, some scholars I've read actually believe he chartered the boat himself. But God has different plans. He sends a storm. The boat begins to break up, begins to sink. The pagan sailors on board are on the top deck having a prayer meeting while Jonah, the God-fearing prophet, you know, is below, sleeping. They go down, wake him up. They say, what's the problem? He says, I'm your problem. Throw me overboard and you'll get rid of your problem. Reluctantly, they do. These pagan sailors have more concern for human life than this prophet of God. They throw him overboard and the storm stops. And they have a come-to-Jesus moment. The, the sailors get serious about their relationship with God and the text says so does Jonah because God, in his sovereignty, provides a great fish 
who swallows Jonah, and from the belly of the fish, Jonah begins to understand God's grace. Begins to understand God's grace. And he begins to come to grips imperfectly, as we'll see, that God not only gives grace to nice Jewish people, but also to those nasty Assyrians. He realizes that the fish is not punishment, but deliverance, and he sums everything up in chapter 2, verse 8, one of the critical verses in the whole book, chapter 2, verse 8, where he says, those who worship worthless idols forfeit the grace offered to them. So the book of Jonah is about the grace of God and that life-changing, world-offering, earth-shattering grace that he offers not only to us, but to everyone. Now here's reality. We are way more like Jonah than we think. His story is our story. Because in many cases, like Jonah, we are profoundly unaware of our own stuff. Our own self-righteousness, our own pride, our own anxiety and fear and self-centeredness, even our own bigotry. And we actually think that people don't deserve God's grace. Those ISIS people, you know, over in the Middle East, those, those inner city types, those drug dealers, those illegal immigrants, they don't deserve God's grace. We think that way. That's Jonah. In fact, it's us. In fact, I'll take it a step further. We think we're better, truthfully, than other people. Now, I don't care where you're at in terms of your faith in Jesus Christ. I really don't. Or what your political views are. I don't care. Our society has become so tribal that we literally isolate ourselves from, other, from people who disagree with us, from people we don't like, and consequently de demonize them, we despise them, we disdain people because they're not like us, and we forget, like Jonah, that God's offer for, of grace is for everyone. God has given grace to us, and we are to give grace to the other. So Jonah has plenty of time to think about this because the text says that the fish took three days and three nights, Jewish idiom, for a long time, to take him back to Palestine, then pukes him up on the beach. We can only wonder what he looked and smelled like. Goes into town, what happened to you? Don't ask. And without getting a vacation, we read once again, chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and it's there that we pick up the story. So why don't you join me? I'm going to read it from the NIV. Uh, join me. You listen, I read. Chapter 3 of the book of Jonah, NIV, uh, translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give to you. Jonah, this time, obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, 
He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation that he issued in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on the Lord. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw that they, what they did and how they turned, word repent there, turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. The word of the Lord. Now from this passage, we get a glimpse of the shocking, profound, earth-shattering nature of grace. And here is what we're going to see. Four things. The first thing is this. First, grace is the offer of a second chance. Grace is the offer of a second chance. Verse 1, chapter 3, we have the word of the Lord coming to Jonah a second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, and call out against it the message I give to you. Virtually the same, almost the same sentence structure as chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Okay? A second chance. Jonah is given a second chance. Now let me ask you a question. Who does that? Who does that? You don't take a court-martial officer and put him in charge, right? You don't take the CEO that's stolen millions of dollars from his company and let him continue to run the business. But God, in his grace, uses our failures and uses our suffering and our pain, our mistakes, for his purposes. I can say without equivocation, that the greatest lessons I've learned in life haven't come through my success, but through my failure. The mistakes, the stupid things I've done, the stupid things I've said. Failure, not success. In fact, failures become the training ground for God's greater purposes in our life. Suffering, as one person put it, makes you into servants. So the most likely people to effectively run a drug treatment facility, you know what they are? They're former drug addicts. The most likely people to fight against drunk driving are those whose lives have been shattered by drunk drivers. Pain and failure shapes and molds us like nothing else. It is in the crucible of our suffering, the crucible of our pain and our failure that we often find our success. And you know that you've grasped the grace of God when you're able to use that failure, that pain, that suffering to help others. So the truth of the matter is, the grace of God is often the gift of a second chance. Now, I want to qualify that. This is not a promise that every time we mess up, we're going to be given a second chance. There's a story in 2 Kings chapter 13 about a prophet who, like Jonah, disobeyed. And he lost his life. And we are not always afforded a second chance. And some of us, 
You need to take that to heart. But this is a reminder that God does and did and will give us the grace, often offer the second chance of grace to people based on His sovereign will. Listen, just because you've messed up or we've messed up doesn't mean our life is over. It doesn't mean our opportunities are lost and it doesn't mean we have no reason to go on living. Some of us are being given a second chance to make a marriage work. Some of us are given a second chance to deal with a character flaw that's wiping out relationships, destroying things at work, making us miserable with other people. Some of us here believe we've done things so bad we've been rendered useless to God. We don't believe we'll be given a second chance. By God's grace, it's an offer of a second chance. And at times, all of us need a second chance. Now let me plug something here. Emotionally healthy spirituality is an opportunity for a second chance. Okay? It's great for a first chance. You don't need it for a second chance. But this is an enormous opportunity for discipleship and spiritual growth. I want to encourage you to go online, hit the events link, and sign up for that class. Okay? If you don't want to do that, go out to the welcome just afterwards. The point is this. God, through His grace, offers us a second chance. Where in your life do you need a second chance? Where in your life do you need a second chance? Number two. Number two. The grace of God is the motivation to go on some great quest. The motivation to go on some great quest. Now, you know what a quest is, right? A quest is a mission to unlock some great mystery or accomplish some great task. Most of us are drawn to this, are we not? I mean, I want my life to count. We, don't, we, we want to matter. We want to make a difference. We want to save our world. Isn't this, if you're younger, isn't this what you think, Right? Okay, if you're older, remember what it was like when you thought you could do anything? You know, let us be in charge and we'll change the world. Remember that? This is why Indiana Jones and those movies are so compelling. My wife and I are on an Indiana Jones binge. We've gotten through movie three. I mean, just listening to that music, you know what it is, right? It makes me want to jump on a horse and find the Holy Grail. And so what we're seeing here is that this motivation for being involved in this great quest comes as a result of God's grace. See, a grace that we see first and foremost in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes at great cost to himself. He leaves his throne in heaven, comes to earth, and he, you know, as a baby, he lives, he dies, he's raised from the dead. And it's in his death and resurrection that we see the accomplishment of his mission to save the world from evil and sin and tragedy. And someday he promises to come back to make all wrong things right and to right all wrongs. And it's a mission that he invites us to be part of. So Jonah, moved by the grace of God, obeys, go to Nineveh, he said, and he does. He gets up literally and he goes. And the author begins to tell us how enormous the quest is. The text says Nineveh was a very great city. Seven and a half miles wrong, long, uh, around. The, the walls were 100 feet high, wide enough to, for three chariots to, to drive on. Uh, it, it's just remarkable. 1,500 watchtowers. No one would ever think of conquering it. Massive by ancient standards. He's got three days. 
He's an army of one. You know, the people are godless. He's 500 miles from home. It's like a rabbi going to the Reichstag in 1930 and, and, and calling the Nazis to repent. Chances of success are remote, but he goes anyways and says, bring it on. Because of the grace of God. So in some respects, all of us have that kind of word from the Lord. Okay? It, not, it may not be to go to a place like Nineveh, or even to Cambodia, or even to inner city Minneapolis. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're called to go on a quest, a word from the Lord, to do something for the kingdom of God. Now, it can be easy, especially as we get older, to get cynical about this. Why try, we think, to waste the time? Nothing will ever change. But this quest comes with a guarantee. But Jesus himself says, for the Christian at the very gates of hell will not prevail against us, Matthew 16, 18. No matter how small a thing we do, it is going to ding. It's going to make a ding on the world's needs. So take up the quest, go on the mission, because ultimately we cannot and will not fail. The grace of God is a motivation for being involved in a quest, a mission. Now let me, let me remind you of something. Our mission at Christ Community Church, is to restore our broken world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of our values is to be the hands and feet of Jesus right here in Rochester and around the world. We have lots of ways that we can participate in this mission. In fact, the local outreach and mission team has come up with a calendar. Every month there are activities for you to be involved with to take the gospel out into the city. There's going to be a link on the website you can download that link and be involved in as many activities as you want. I want to say, do a shout-out for the local outreach team. They've done a great job. Okay? And right now, just to make things work here on a weekend, we need 68 children's workers. Right now, 68 down in Kids City. Right now. And, and we're going to be having section hosts here in the auditorium. We need 36 people every weekend to serve our community here at the church. See? Section hosts. And as one person put it, God is like a spiritual tornado. He never sucks you in without spinning you out. He never calls you in to bless you without sending you out to bless others. As we, as we have received grace, so we are to give it. So here's the question for you. What kind of world-changing quest is God calling you to as an act of His grace. Grace is the offer of a second chance. Grace is the motivation to go on some great quest. But thirdly, grace, grace is the call for real life change. It's the call for life transformation. Life change, in fact, what grace does is it shapes us into the kind of people that we were created to be. In fact, what grace does is it shapes us into the kind of people we want to be. Grace is a call to real life change, verses 4 to 10. Now here's Jonah. He's an army of one. He enters this impregnable city and he sacks it. He takes it to its knees with a message that contains an offer of grace but in a very different way than we think. Forty days, he says, and Nineveh will be overthrown. I mean, why say that? Why, why, you know, 
what, it sounds incredibly judgmental. Why the focus on the wrath of God? Why the focus on sin? I mean, why not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Accept his plan. Why not life is empty? God will fill it. Why not that? Why this call to repentance? Here's why. Because for real life change to take place, you've got to deal with your stuff. And that means dealing with your sin. For me personally, the only time I've really changed is when I've come to grips with the ugliness of my behavior and my sin. That's it. Because otherwise, why change? Why trouble yourself? See, dealing with sin. In fact, verses 4 to 10, we see the plot line of the entire scriptures. Why are we here? What went wrong? How do you make it right? And how can you be part of it? Verses 4 to 10. The whole Bible, right there. There's no change apart from coming to grips with your junk, your sin, your stuff. Okay? Unless we face the radical self-centeredness of our heart, the arrogance, the pride, the anxiety, the fear, the bigotry, nothing's going to change. Repentance isn't an emotional upheaval. It is a change of direction, a change of life. And amazingly, with this message, Nineveh is brought to its knees. They believe the message, verse 5. And Jonah is stunned. He can't believe it. It's remarkable. This is like, let me tell you how remarkable this is. This is like Harvey Weinstein converting to Christianity and then working in a sex addiction clinic. That's what this is like. This is like Osama bin Laden coming to faith in Christ and then joining Jews for Jesus. It's that remarkable. So from the greatest to the least, they put on sackcloth and ashes and, you know, and they, they humbled us before the Lord. Now sackcloth was made out of goat's hair. It was like wearing burlap underwear. Nasty stuff. And this message, verse 6, made it all the way to the palace. The king rose... Very intentional, the word rose from his throne, uh, noting his determination. He puts on sackcloth and ashes, he, 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 and, he, and he, he, he proclaims a citywide fast for everybody, and then makes a decree telling people to turn from their evil ways and their violence. Now this term violence, very significant. It's used to describe in other parts of the Bible, Matthew, excuse me, Micah chapter 6, 11 to 12, for example, describes behavior that is eating away at the very fabric of the culture. So, so, the, so the Ninevites, okay, they weren't just wicked and cruel with those they, they conquered, but they treated each other in the same way. There was legal and social corruption. They defrauded the poor. There was bribery, lawlessness. They were rotting from the inside out, and the king knew it. And while the extent of their repentance is questionable, that is, to what degree and for how long, no one really knows. But the point is that they repented and changed and God showed them mercy. Verse 10. Isn't this what we want? Don't we want our marriages to be better? Don't we want our culture to be better? Don't we want our lives to be changed? Isn't this what we want? See, it's not politics or psychology or social anthropology that does it. It's repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ that does it. John Newton was an 18th century minister in the United Kingdom. 
best known for a song that he wrote called Amazing Grace. A song that's so profoundly moving and compelling that even non-Christians love it. And Newton understood the meaning of grace. He understood what it was to do, to be life, to do life change. John Newton's dad was the captain of a ship. By age 11, he was making his way. He, was, he joined the crew of a ship. Soon he found himself being the captain of his own ship, got involved in the very lucrative slave trade, buying and selling human cargo. Didn't think a thing about it until one day a severe storm nearly sunk the boat. And all of a sudden his mortality came before him. He made friends with a Christian man who over time eventually laid him to, led him to Christ. And years later, after his conversion, years later, Newton gave up the slave trade. It took a long time. But eventually, he changed. And soon went into ministry and joined forces with a guy named William Wilberforce and helped to eradicate the very slave trade that he had profited from. That's what grace does to you. It changes you from the inside out. So here's a question. What about your life? What about your life needs to change? You may not be an Assyrian king or a slave trader, but there are things that God wants you and me to do in about face on. Maybe it's the way you talk to people. See? Maybe it's the way you treat your family or relatives, the attitudes that you have. For me personally, it's the way I think about family at odds with me. What does God want to do to change your life? How does he want to do to, 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 to how does he want you to do in about face? Because it's only in dealing with that sin and then making a change. Yeah, making a change that you'll actually turn around, okay? Grace, the offer of a second chance. Grace, the motivation to go on some great quest. Grace, grace, the call for a radically changed life. But here's a question. How do you know it'll work? How do you know it'll work? How do you know that God will actually give you a second chance? How do you know that going on some great mission and giving yourself for some great cost is actually worth your time? I mean, we live in a society right now that tells us, that tells us that we must be true to ourselves. We must identify our deepest desires and follow them. Follow our heart, we're told. We can't let family or culture or, or context or religion or tribe get in the way of us living the life we want to live. Let me tell you, if I'm living like that, I'm not thinking about you, I'm thinking about me. So how do I know it's worth giving my time for you? How do I know that going through the difficulty of actually changing something about my life is worth the time? How do we know? It's in the text. It's in the text. Verse 10. Grace highlights the extravagant generosity, the extravagant compassion of the living God. Look at verse 10. When God saw that they, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened them. Notice, they repented, God relented, and he gave grace. And you know what? This points us right to Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 to 41, the religious leaders of Jesus' day virtually asked him the same kind of question. How do we know that repentance works? How do we know that you're our Messiah? How do, you know that every, how do we know that what you're saying to us is true? 
So Jesus goes to Jonah chapter 2 and 3 and says this. No, he, they say, give us a sign. Give us a sign. Prove to us. He says, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah who spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Just like I will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth pointing to his death and resurrection. And then he gives this chilling warning. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment against this generation because at the preaching of Jonah, they repented. And someone greater than Jonah is here. You know what he's saying? Jesus is saying, I am the better Jonah. I'm the perfect Jonah. Jonah went on a mission that could have easily meant death and suffering. Jesus' mission meant certain death and suffering. Death, for you, death and suffering, a death he died for you and me. Jonah declared 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Jesus declared the kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe the good news. What's the good news? That because of the cross of Jesus Christ and this offer of grace is real, we can take him seriously and grace will change our life. That God's word is true and we can trust him to do what he says he will with us. And for that reason, we know that he wants to give us a second chance. For that reason, we know we can be delighted in joining him in, in, in some great mission. Grace changes everything. And when we understand that, grace becomes the background music of our lives and its sound will pour out from us unto others as God has poured it out unto us. Now what? What is God saying to you today?